questions. I think that relativism is, is almost a view that one is being acculturated into because one is sort of, one is sort of, one, one wants to be respectful of other people's views. And then if one disagrees with them, it's kind of, it almost seems like what one has to say is, well, maybe we are both right. And, and then the theoretical perplexity of what that even means is as it were sometimes in real life subordinate to the need to get along with other people. And so you, you know, you, you kind of somehow accommodate the idea that, you know, maybe different, you know, maybe different beliefs are true, even if they are about the same thing. And, and you are perturbed by this, for, you know, it's a kind of disturbing idea because it's just not clear how, you know, in philosophy we would say, that violates the principle of non-contradiction is simply not going to be possible that contradictory beliefs are true. But in real life, if you have a fight with other people, it sometimes seems like, you know, you have a choice of either um, just splitting up and no longer talking to them or somehow saying, well, maybe we are both right. And that is just a really difficult choice. I think. So I think that for that, you know, if only for that reason, and that is a big reason, namely our everyday lives, relativism is a truly huge topic. It is something that we all need to somehow grapple with. And I do think that in some sense, you know, I will kind of venture to say as a proponent of the study of ancient philosophy, that the single most intriguing formulation of relativism comes from ancient philosophy, and that is Plato engaging with Protagoras. Protagoras is a sophist, and, you know, who is a sophist? The sophists are these early Greek intellectuals, and I think many of them also very serious philosophers. And part of their background is that they travel between different cities and they make a kind of deep experience that people live according to different norms and according to different beliefs in different places. And that is really a disturbing experience. You know, you, they come back to Athens and they say people somewhere else say that what they do is natural and right. But you guys in Athens, you say the same thing. So what are we going to do about this? Either we are going to say that someone is wrong and someone else is right, or we're going to say that everyone is right, or we're going to say that there is no wrong and right. And it is a very big problem. And they are perceived really as rebel, rebels and as a disturbance in, in Athenian culture because they shake up this kind of self-perception of where you think, you know, of course, what we do is right. Of course, our customs are right. And I think it is easy to, to kind of talk about Athenians at the time and say, you know, they thought that what they do is right. But I think we are all kind of a little bit inclined to do that when we think about our own ways of life. And then, then we think about what other people do. We, we kind of think, you know, we have our reasons and we are very strongly committed to at least many of the things that we are doing. So I think it is also for us really difficult to, to deal with the idea that other people might think that significantly different ways of life might be right and kind of naturally right, you know, kind of no question about it. Absolutely, that's just the right thing to do. And we think the same thing. And what are you going to do about this? So that is as it were the starting point 
in in Greek ethics. I personally think that that is one of the big, that is sort of one of the motors really of what what starts, what kickstarts Western ethics that Plato and Aristotle confront the this truly disturbing set of ideas brought up by sophists and they think philosophers somehow need to respond to it it is it is it is the kind of the single most challenging idea in ethics that that maybe there is no right and wrong and you know that you know to say there is no right and wrong is another way of saying maybe everyone is right or everyone is wrong so i'm going to talk just a, sort of a little bit about what precisely are the ideas that Plato finds in sophistic relativism and, you know, mostly that is Protagorean relativism. And what does it, you know, what does he make of it? And in a sense, the puzzle that I want to raise is for Plato, it is pretty clear that relativism is false. And I think that the same is true for us today. We, we think it is simply not an option that the principle of non-contradiction doesn't hold. It is not an option that all beliefs are true. And nevertheless, we think that there is something to think about in relativism. So the puzzle somehow is, why are we so interested in relativism if we kind of know that it is false? And if we kind of obviously know that it is false? So I want to talk first about why is this obviously, you know, what it even is, what is relativism, and then why is it obviously false? And then in the last step, why is it still somehow interesting? And I think that last step is, is especially important because it may tell us kind of where to go from here. Why should, you know, given that we can refute relativism, is there still anything that we can take away from it? Is Are there any kind of, is there... In a phrase used by Bernard Williams, is there a truth in relativism? Even if relativism is false, is there a truth in it that we can take away? Okay, so here's, here's a quote from Protagoras' book called Truth in Greek, Aletheia, that Plato quotes. And it says, man is the measure of all things of things which are that they are and of the things which are not that they are not. And that is a quote from the Theaetetus. So that's a dialogue by Plato. And Socrates reformulates this as follows. As each thing appears to me, so it is for me. And as it appears to you, so it is for you. Now, I want to ask two questions about this. The the text is kind of pretty difficult to to just understand what precisely is going on in this kind of idea that man is or human beings as today we would say are the measure of things which are that they are and of things which are not that they are not the first question i want to take away is why should relativism be about what is you know the claim is here that man is the measure or human beings are the measure of all things which are, what does that even mean? Why are we talking about the existence of things? And then Socrates is reformulating it in terms of appearance. What is, and so, you know, as each thing appears to me, so it is for me. And I want to ask, what is this notion of appearances? So first about Kind of what is and what is you know how are, how are, are we using the verb to be 
in this context. Now, philosophers, especially those who, who study ancient philosophy, tend to make a distinction between a predicative and an existential use of is, the verb to be. When you use the verb to be in a predicative use, you are saying that something is so-and-so, like the tree is tall, the apple is green, and so on. So you are predicating, say, green of the apple. And that is the predicative use of is. The apple is green. But there's also an existential use of is, where you're saying there is an apple, or there is a tree, or there's the color green. And so that is the existential use of is. And there is a question of whether, you know, if you return to the formulation of what is going on in Protagoras' book on truth, it's kind of unclear whether he uses is in the predicative or the existential sense when he says that human beings are the measure of all things, of things which are, that they are. That could mean that human beings are the measure of all things which are such and such, which are green or tall or fun or boring or whatever. And it could also mean that man is the measure of all things which are in the sense of which exist, that somehow we are the measure of what is there rather than on how the world is. Those are quite, you know, quite different claims. Now, in the Theaetetus, it looks as if initially Plato is taking the verb to be in this predicative, the first sense, where is means you say, you know, something is such and such. The apple is green. The tree is tall. Because the example that Plato is very interested in is that here are two people. There's a wind. And one person says, I'm freezing. And the other person says, I'm not. So one person says the wind is cold and the other person says the wind is not cold. This is the cold wind example. This is maybe, you know, the single most famous example in ancient philosophy. So you're sort of assuming, you know, we walk across campus and I say, oh, it's so windy, it's freezing. And you say, no, it's fine. It's, it's not cold. And then you ask, you know, are we living in different realities? Like, what is even going on here? And one way to take it is in this predicative sense where there is a wind, but I say it is cold and you say it is not cold. So I predicate cold of the wind and you predicate not cold of the wind. But then there is the existential sense where it can seem like there is a wind for me. For me, the world is windy. For me, the world is kind of, there's a storm going on. I feel that cold, freezing current of air. And for you, there just isn't anything like this. So I say there is a cold wind and you say there is no cold wind. And that would be the existential use of is. Now, why is that an interesting distinction? One refutation of relativism that Plato entertains and that he sort of formulates in the Theaetetus is that first, you might say, well, you know, if you and I walk across campus and I say it's cold, you say it's not cold, then it may seem there is just no shared world between us. 
And that could be a problem because we typically think that we live in the world as it is. And it is sort of the same for all of us. And then maybe someone makes a mistake about how it is, but still the world somehow is the world. But so one one problem could be there is no shared world among different agents. But a kind of more radical problem could be that maybe in the morning when I'm tired, I feel that the wind today is really cold. And in the afternoon when I've had more coffee and tea or whatever, and a little bit of rest, then I'll say um, the wind is not cold. And so it could be the case that according to relativism really, it's not just that there isn't a shared world across agents, but also not across different times at which one agent perceives the world. And that would be a very radical scenario where it seems that, you know, it's not just that, that it's unclear whether you are right or I'm right when we say the, the wind is cold or the wind is not cold, but where it could seem that there really isn't such a thing as one object, the wind that both you and I refer to. And there's also not the one thing that I refer to now and an hour later. And that would just sort of mean that the world as it were crumbles. There are no shared objects, no, no stable objects in the world that we refer to because ultimately when, if it were the case as Protagoras' measure doctrine stipulates that what seems to me is true for me and what seems to you is true for you, then it would have to be true that when I say the wind is cold, and it has to be true when you say the wind is not cold or the other way around. So there's got to be a cold wind for you and there's got to be a, cold, a not cold wind for me. And that means we live in our separate worlds. We do not live in a shared world. There are no, no, there isn't kind of one object that you talk about and I talk about. Because if it's true that I say the object is cold and you say the object is not cold, there must be different objects. And the, that is a kind of extraordinarily puzzling idea that ultimately, according to relativism, we live in as a kind of completely closed off worlds where the things that I talk about are just things relative to me and the things that you talk about are things relative to you. But we cannot even disagree about something because we're not talking about the same thing. When I talk about the wind being cold for me, I talk about as if it were my wind. And when you talk about it being not cold for you, you talk about as if it were your wind. And, and we don't talk about the same thing, so we don't disagree. But it means there are no shared objects. And Plato thinks that that is ultimately really absurd. And another way to show that relativism is kind of absurd, simply not, not credible, not, you know, not conceivable, not thinkable, absurd, is if we take seriously the assumption that what appears to me is for me and what appears to you is for you. And then we think of appearance, 
you know, what, it, what does it mean to say that something appears to me? Well, it seems to me. And then Plato reformulates that in terms of beliefs. So what seems to me is what I believe to be the case. And what seems to you is what you believe to be the case. Now, if everything that I believe is true and everything that you believe is true and everything that anyone else believes is true, that means all beliefs are true. And that is what relativism says. So it should, in some sense, it should be immediately apparent that that is a completely untenable doctrine because it means there are no false beliefs. And of course there could be, you know, there could be falsity because someone is lying. There could be false utterances, false kind of speech. But there couldn't be false beliefs because whatever seems to me is true, whatever seems to you is true, whatever seems to anyone else is true. And that, of course, leads, you know, A, that denies the principle of non-contradiction, which should be kind of, in in a sense, enough to, to show that it is, like, impossible. But you might also say that there's a kind of further problem here if you... You know, what about my belief that your belief is false? Is that also going to be true? What about your belief that my belief is false? Is that also going to be true? So we we kind of enter a territory where it seems that self, that relativism is self-refutational because we claim that all beliefs are true, and that includes all of those beliefs which say that someone else's belief is false. And then... Like in the Theaetetus, the, there is a kind of standoff. It is unclear whether that is simply a, re, a complete refutation of relativism or whether maybe there is a way to save it. But at any rate, it is clear that a view according to, to which there is no falsity, all beliefs are true, does not not at all accommodate our everyday intuitions, even if our everyday intuitions are somewhat inclined in favor of relativism. It is kind of quite inconceivable, really, to, you know, to deal with ordinary disputes if you were to completely abandon the idea of falsity. You know, if you can't even say, you know, someone says to you, we still have enough milk for tomorrow's breakfast and 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 you say no we don't there's no milk in the fridge and then you say well you know when we are relativists like all beliefs are true you say like no no sorry you know either someone has to go to the grocery store or not so we we all like you know even if we are with respect to cultural matters or whatever even if we have some intuitions that speak in favor of relativism There are so many things in ordinary life where falsity is extraordinarily important and basic for action, for decision-making, for any kind of interaction that we have with other people, that to adopt the view according to which all beliefs are true seems, seems simply kind of not feasible. So, so we have two I mean, those are, you know, my, my summaries here are extremely um, quick. In the theaters, the art moves leave on the, lead on the one hand to this idea that there are no shared objects that we refer to 
and on the other hand, that there are that all beliefs are true. Those are long arguments, complicated arguments, very disputed arguments, in you know, in the particular steps that Plato takes. And and I would like to encourage everyone to to actually read the Theaetetus and sort of puzzle through those arguments. But the upshot is that there are two, at least two, strong arguments against relativism. One is that relativism, as it were, dissolves the idea that there is a shared world, shared objects that we talk about and disagree about. And the other is that all beliefs are true. And now you might think, well, you know, if, if that's, if that's the picture, why are we even discussing relativism? It's so obviously false. It's like a, like a disaster theory. It's like completely non-starter kind of theory. Why should the Morningside Institute have a series on relativism? Why does Plato write long dialogues about relativism? Why does Aristotle engage with it? Why do philosophers today engage with it? And I want to end with like three suggestions for why I think that for Plato and for Aristotle. So on here, I'm kind of mixing a little bit, just sort of different um, approaches in ancient philosophy. Why we might still think that relativism deserves our attention. And one is, and I'm going to scroll back to the kind of initial formulation, Man is the measure of all things, of things which are, and so on and so forth. Now, okay, for, you know, today, for us, the formulation that man is the measure of all things, non-starter. But let's sort of replace that with human beings are the measure of all things, which is also an okay translation of the Greek. Both Plato and Aristotle think that there is something true about that in ethics. And why would that be? They think that in ethics, we ask question about how human beings should live. When we ask what is good and bad, we are not really asking how should the dog live or how should a bird live. We ask how we should live. And Thus, if we want to find a kind of measure, kind of criteria, you know, measure is kind of term that might be cashed out in terms of criteria or standards. If you want to find standards in ethics, they are, they must be stand standards that somehow are standards for us, for human beings. And the kind of goodness that we are after in ethics for them is kind of ultimately determined by what in fact is a good human life. Like what is, what is a way for a human being to lead a good life? So Plato and Aristotle both endorse that there is a kind of, a kind of relativity to human beings, not to individual human beings, not to like you versus me, but to human beings. Given the kind of being we are, such and such is good or bad for us, and such and such is right and wrong. So they do endorse something like this. So that's my first point here, human beings and ethics, that if we take the measure doctrine to be about normative, about ethical questions, which is just a subset of questions, it's not about like whether the wind is cold and so on, but if we take it to be importantly about normative and ethical questions, 
Then Protagoras seems to say something important, namely that ethics is about human agents. And we ask how we should be, you know, what we should be doing and how we should live and so on. And the second point is closely related about human beings and other living beings. Aristotle has a kind of really famous remark in the Nicomachean Ethics, which says that the good is not the same for human beings and for fish. And that's a kind of really insightful remark. I think it's, a, I think, incredibly important remark because you, you can read stuff in ethics in, in 20th century ethics where it seems that goodness is this abstract, absolute property which is completely unrelated to anything. But, you know, something is good for the fish. You know, for the fish, it's good to be kind of underwater. For me, it is not good to be underwater. And those are... Those are important facts when we ask, you know, how one helps human beings, what does it mean for a human being to be in need, what is it that we owe to other human beings, and so on. And there are similar kinds of considerations in, in Plato's Protagoras, you know, there's also a dialogue called Protagoras after um, this sophist Protagoras, where Plato observes or Socrates observes that oil is bad for plants and deadly for the hair of animals, but beneficial to the hair and body of human beings. And that hence, if we ask, you know, what is, you know, if we do ethics and we ask what is good for human beings, we, we genuinely ask what is good for human beings as opposed to other living beings. So ethics, there is a genuine relativity to human beings as a kind of being in in ethics and that you know and, and then you might ask you know is it are there you know if some things are relative to all of us maybe some other things in ethics are relative to some of us that is not unthinkable in that framework and finally last point i think that one reason why plato is really intrigued by Protagoras is because of Protagoras's philosophy of education. You know, the sophists are, of course, educators. They promise that they make you successful by teaching you how to win the argument, how to be a good rhetorician, how to talk well, think well, be kind of the superior speaker. And that is presumably incredibly important for political success in Athens. And when Protagoras talks about his own approach to education, he says he is like a farmer and a farmer is kind of watering the soil and then the little plants are going to flourish and that's what he does. So he's talking with his students. He's not telling them what to think. He's just aiming for them to be in a better condition such that they can flourish. And I think that Plato thinks that that is right, that that is truly the right philosophy of education, that there's a kind of um, enigmatic formulation in the symposium, another dialogue by Plato, that it is impossible to pour knowledge into someone's head. That is simply not how learning works. You cannot put thoughts or beliefs into someone's head. Someone needs to think their thoughts for themselves. If you want people to have better beliefs, you need to put them in a position where they themselves can 
acquire those better beliefs by thinking them as their own thoughts. And that is the only way anything ever gets into a human head as something that is integrated into their thinking. And so I think that that Plato is, is quite influenced by that philosophy of education. And when we look at his own proposals in the Republic and in other dialogues, he, he talks about education, not in terms of what is it that we're going to teach you, you know, here's like the stuff that you need to know. He always talks about education as a turning around of the soul, as putting people in a position from which things are going to appear differently to them. And so in a sense that, you know, that resonates with relativism because it means that in that better position, human beings are going to have better seemings, better thoughts. What seems true to them is going to be a better seeming. And that's exactly what Protagoras promises in his approach to education. So anyway, so that's that's my conclusion. I think that as much as we as much as relativism is refuted, I think there are kind of two, at least two truths in it. One is about the nature of ethics, a kind of relativity to human beings as a legitimate outlook when we think about good and bad. And those are the first two points, you know, closely related points. And the other is in the philosophy of education that really the only way for people to think better thoughts is to think them themselves. And that means that there's no way in which you can, as it were, force people to kind of accept your truth. The only way in which the people change beliefs is if they themselves come to be in a position where the world looks different to them. And I take that to be a very interesting insight in the philosophy of mind and epistemology. Thank you. <laughs>